Fringe Ministries presents a one-part teaching on the two trees, the tree of good and evil and the tree of life. Enjoy this teaching. Today I'm going to do something unusual, something I've never done before, or something at least I can't remember doing before. Today we begin our new Torah portion, which means we begin at Genesis, right? Bereshit 1-1, and it goes through the early couple verses in chapter 6. And you know how the Torah portion's laid out. There's a reading every week. I've never given a message on the Torah portion. I know that sounds bizarre, but it's just something I haven't done. But today, I'm going to do that. So, today we're going to talk about something as I read through the Torah portion. What really, dropped, what really stuck out to me was the two trees that are in the Garden of Eden. As we come to Genesis 2.8, this is what we read. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's very important that you identify something here. This is critical because it's going to be woven throughout the rest of today's message. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, Tavech, in Hebrew, the center. It was the center of it all. But what does this passage say? It wasn't the only tree in the midst of the garden, in the center. There's another tree here. You know, I grew up, you know, with the, we grew up in the church, and you grew up listening to Bible stories, and at times we allow our mind to play games with us in the sense of, uh, of, of creating of an atmosphere, creating imagery of what this would really look like. This is notorious. Everyone reads a book, our imagination comes, comes in, it comes into play. You think maybe the tree of knowledge of good and evil was not anywhere near the tree of life, right? It's hidden behind some other trees, way, way at the back. No one goes there. That is not the case. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was there with the tree of life in the center of it all. And we continue in verse 15. And then the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. It's important, you know, it's interesting. I'm not going to get into this any further, but I will make a quick mention. It's interesting to me that the very first commandment ever found in Scripture is a food law. Huh? How bizarre is that? It is a food law. All right? But there's something else that I really want to focus in here in regard to this. We want to keep this in perspective. When God had placed the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and He had the tree of life sitting there, it is imperative that you understand that it was during the time that Adam and Eve were in a current state of spiritualness. In other words, they were clothed with the glory of God. They were not mortal. At this point, they were immortal. Do you understand? They were immortal. They were eternal beings. And yet, we see as eternal beings the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, what's my point? Why am I making this? This is an important fact to consider when you think about the doctrine of election. Right? The doctrine of being called. Get into Calvinism. This is a very significant point to consider that there were two paths laid out even in the state when man was immortal. It's very, very interesting. Now, before we continue to look at these two trees, or the, the commentary given in the Torah, I want to give you some further insight into these two trees. And how I want to do this is I want to take you to the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch, or Hanoch in the Hebrew. For those of you visiting, you're not familiar with the book of Enoch. Many of the congregants here are. But if you're not familiar with the book of Enoch, you need to know that this book was actually found amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
What does that tell us? That tells us that the religious Jews in the day, the religious Jews way back thousands of years ago, were reading this book with Scripture. (laughs) Somebody's trying to tell me something. So what it does is it tells us that the first century, going thousands of years back, books like Isaiah, Tehillim, the Psalms, these books were found with the book of Hanoch. That is interesting. What does it tell us? It tells us they read it as Scripture. It was highly esteemed. Let me take it a step further, and even more importantly to many of you, I'm sure. We, found, we find the book of Enoch in the New Testament. I would say that lends it some credibility, right? In the book of Jude, we read, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This is a literal and direct quote from Enoch 1.9. This is a literal quote from Enoch 1.9. So this lends the book some serious credence. Notice how we find Jude or Yehuda in the Hebrew, notice how he quotes the book of Enoch. He does so from the perspective of the book's inspired. It's inspired of the Holy Spirit because look at what he says. He prophesied about these men. You don't go around quoting people, telling people that they prophesied unless you believe that that prophecy is inspired, that that writing is inspired because that's the only way Jude had this knowledge. It was from the book of Hanok. So very important to see indirectly we have the book of Hanok in our New Testament. Take it a step further, we even have early church fathers that believe this book was inspired. Tertullian believed this book was inspired. Though at the time he said not everyone does, but he did. He believed. So it's always been a book of controversy. But we come back to, well, what did the believers in Yeshua, the believers in Jesus believe about this book, they believe it was inspired. We have evidence of that. So, with that said, what I want to do, and the reason I'm going to the book of Enoch today, is it's going to provide some additional commentary on these two trees. Commentary that's not given in today's Torah portion. And it's going to help us to put all these things into perspective. I want to give you as much information as I can on these trees, because it develops a picture. All right. So let's investigate first the tree of life, Enoch 24, verse 1. And from thence I went to another place of the earth and showed me a mountain range of fire which burned day and night. Now one thing you need to know about the book of Enoch, it reads like the book of Revelation. Now what's funny is they don't contradict each other one iota. They're in perfect harmony. But it reads like it. The same intensity, Enoch 24, verse 2. And I went beyond it and saw seven magnificent mountains, all differing from the other. And the stones thereof were magnificent and beautiful, magnificent as a whole, of glorious appearance and fair exterior, three towards the east, one founded on the other, three towards the south, one upon the other, and deep rough ravines, no one of which joined with any other. Verse 3. And the seventh mountain was in the midst of these, and it excelled them in height, resembling the seat of a throne. And fragrant trees encircled the throne. This is amazing imagery that we are given here. Verse 4. And among them was a tree such as I had never yet smelt. Neither was any amongst them, nor were others like it. It had a fragrance beyond all fragrance. And its leaves and blooms and wood wither. Not forever. It's fraternal. And its fruit is beautiful. Its fruit resembles the date of a palm. Verse 5. Then I said, how beautiful is this tree? He's captivated by it. It has drawn him in. How beautiful is this tree? And fragrant. And its leaves are fair and its blooms are very delightful in appearance. And then answered Michael, one of the honored, uh, holy and honored angels who was with me, and was their leader, verse, going into chapter 25, verse 1. And he said unto me, Enoch, why dost thou ask me regarding the fragrance of the tree? This is interesting information. 
The first question that we're posed, that is proposed here, that came to Enoch's mind when he's shown all these things, is its fragrance. Its fragrance. Why do you ask me concerning the fragrance of the tree, and why dost thou wish to learn the truth? <laughs> then I answered him, saying, I wish to know about everything, but especially about this tree. Verse 3. And he answered, saying, This high mountain which thou hast seen, whose summit is like the throne of God, is his throne. That seventh mountain, that seventh mountain that exceeded above all else, it is his throne. Where the Holy Great One, the Lord of glory, the eternal King, will sit when he shall come down to visit the earth with goodness. This is amazing prophecy. Verse 4. And as for this fragrant tree, no mortal is permitted to touch it till the great judgment. It's forbidden. No one's allowed to touch this tree until the judgment. When he shall take vengeance on all and bring everything to its consummation forever, it shall then be given to the righteous and holy. Its fruit shall be for uh, food to the elect. It's it's, it's, it literally, this tree produces fruit and it is for the elect. It's for the righteous and holy. Only them. All right? Now listen to this. It shall be transplanted to the holy place, to the temple of the Lord, the eternal king. This is fascinating because as you go to Revelation, it's talking about the temple and all this beautiful stuff that's going on and it's lamb and then there's the tree. The tree of life. Verse 6, let's continue. Then they shall rejoice with joy and be glad. And into the holy they shall enter. And its fragrance shall be in their bones. And they shall live a long life on the earth. We're given some insight, if you will, into the tree of life here. And we're told that this tree, it's beautiful. It's beautiful to behold, and it gives off this incredible fragrance. A fragrance so incredible and peculiar that we're told it emanates from our bones. I want you to think about that. That it emanates from our very bones. When I first read this commentary, this was a while back, when I first read this commentary, I almost fell off of my chair. Because interestingly enough, I read another commentary in the New Testament that literally mirrored this identically. And I have to show it to you. It is awesome. And what you are going to see is that this, what we were just told, this information we were just given, the Apostle Paul was privy to. He knew this. He knew about the fragrance. He had heard about it. Look at this. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Mashiach and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. And going on to verse 15. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death. But to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? There is no doubt that the Apostle Paul, right, that he understood that Yeshua and the tree of life, they're synonymous with one another. He understood this. And that if we possess Yeshua, that very same fragrance that is to emanate, that is in the tree of life, that emanates from the bones of the righteous, is what emanates from us. If we possess the tree of life, the very man who symbolizes the tree. I want you to consider something. Think about this for a moment. Why do we call the tree of life the tree of life? It gives life. It's no mystery, right? The whole point of its name, it tells us what it does. It gives life. Consider the following in John chapter 10, verse 10. Yeshua says, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. When we look at this tree, as we, we're going to get into in a little bit, as we continue in the Torah commentary, this tree of life, it is the very image of the Father, Son, Yeshua. It's the very image of our Lord and Messiah. On the screen, I put up a picture of a Torah scroll. And what's so fascinating about this, what's on this? The Word of God. It's the Torah. 
It's the instructions of the Lord. It's the righteousness of God, right? Well, interestingly enough, these wood handles, we would just call them handles here, being from the West, but that's not what a Jewish person calls them. He calls them the Etzchaim, known as the tree of life. So here you have this tree of life. The Torah is there. It's rolled up. It's all one. It's the tree of life. Right? Listen to what Proverbs said. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her and happy are all who retain her. The Word of God is a tree of life. That's what it is. God's commandments, His instructions for His people is a tree of life. Of life, going to Psalm 119.50. This is my comfort in my affliction. Your word has given me life. What do we know about the word that's rolled up on the scroll? Which, interestingly enough, remember, oftentimes you'll find that um, Torah scrolls are actually on lambskin. The lamb had to die for us to receive the word. It's all on the tree of life. What do we know about the word? John 1.14 tells us, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the tree of life and our Lord, Master Yeshua, are synonymous with one another. Let me show you another attribute of the tree of life as we dig into this. And going to the last chapter of Revelation, which is kind of a parallel book, if you will, to the book of Enoch, John, he is going to reveal to us, he's going to show us something regarding the tree of life. This is what he says in chapter 22, verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal. John is seeing something here in the future regarding the temple. Proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on the other side of the river was the tree of life. Okay? Which bore twelve fruits. Each fruit yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So here we're told John's revelation of this tree of life is what does it do? As we said before, it produces life, but it heals. There's a healing characteristic with this tree of life. And we go to Psalm 107.20. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Uh, who is this? This is Yeshua. He's the Word made flesh. He is the very tree of life. What's it say in Isaiah 53? By His wounds we are healed. Right? He produces healing. He's the very image of the tree of life. So this gives us just a little bit of background of this tree which we're going to read about in the Torah portion. Now, I want to move on And I want to talk about the other tree that is in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And again, I'm going to take you back to the book of Enoch and give you some additional information, some commentary on this tree. Listen very closely. Enoch 32, verse 3. And I came to the garden of righteousness. I love this. Not only is it called the garden of Eden, it is called the garden of righteousness. And saw beyond those trees many large trees growing there and of goodly fragrance. Large, very beautiful, and glorious. And the tree of wisdom, whereof they ate and know great wisdom, that tree is in height like the fir, and its leaves are like those of the carob tree, and its fruit is like the clusters of the vine. Very beautiful. And the fragrance of the tree penetrates afar. The fragrance of this tree penetrates from afar. He goes on and says, verse 5, Then I said, this is how Enoch responds to this tree. How beautiful is the tree and how attractive is its look. So Enoch tells us that this tree of wisdom, right? we're told here in this commentary, it too produces a special fragrance. A fragrance that is so powerful and alluring it penetrates from afar. This tree you need to understand, it's not like any other. This tree is not like any other. This tree is beautiful. It's captivating to the point that Enoch, he's almost, if you will, drawn into it. He's mesmerized by this tree. It was breathtaking. 
Let me ask you a question. Who does this sound like? Right? Who does this sound like? Who does the tree of knowledge of good and evil represent? The prophet Ezekiel answers this question. Going to Ezekiel 28 verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. It's quite an introduction for this man of Tyre, right? Understand something. This man of Tyre is merely code for Hasatan, for Satan. It's a euphemism for the evil one. This prophecy which we're about to embark on is all about Satan. It goes way beyond the king of Tyre and the day Ezekiel prophesied of this. You're going to see this to be, you're going to find this to be true. But looking at this first, this introduction, the description given here regarding Satan, look at how he is described. Perfect in beauty, full of wisdom. Is this not the very description that Enoch gives us regarding the tree of knowledge of good and evil? The tree that was beautiful to behold, it was captivating. And it was called the, oh yeah, tree of wisdom. That's what it was called. Now continuing on in this prophecy about the evil one, look at what is said next. You want to talk about parallels. Remember where the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was. Remember where it was. Ezekiel 28, 13. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. One of the things that's very troubling to me right here, where do we see these stones? Every one of these stones that is mentioned, where do we see them? The high priest is adorned with these stones. All of these stones, the high priest is adorned with. You want to talk about what kind of character we were talking about, what kind of creation Satan was. This is starting to give you some insight. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. He was special. He was special above all the angels. On the day, there were special preparations for the day of his creation when God created him. Verse 14. You are the anointed cherub who covers. What do we know about the throne of God? Through the shadows that we were given in the Old Testament, which are image and shadows of the authentic. We know that there were cherubim, two cherubim that stood over the throne of God. The Kisei, the throne of the living God. Satan was one of those angels. And I'm pretty sure after studying Scripture for as many years as I have, the closer we get to God, the more brilliant we are. The closer we get to God, the more brilliant we shine. You don't get closer to God than literally being at the throne of God. Being a covering cherub. Could you imagine the glory and beauty of this angel? I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God, which is to say, this is, again, this is code for throne of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect and your ways from the day you were created. Till iniquity was found in you. He was perfect. Of course he was. He was on the throne of God. He, he was hovering. He was a covering cherub. The Lord dwells between the Caribbean, Psalm 80. He was perfect until something happened. Iniquity was found in him. Verse 16. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. Read Revelation 12. And I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. And we know something about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It was beautiful. What do we know about Satan? His heart became lifted up because of how beautiful he was. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground, I laid you before kings, that they might gaze at you. Suffice it to say, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is so appealing, which is so desirable, it is the very image of our adversary, the adversary of God. Now getting back to this passage in Enoch, I just want to finish this out, his commentary on this tree. We read in Enoch 32 verse 6, 
Then Raphael, the holy angel who was with me, answered me and said, This is the tree of wisdom, of which thy father, old in years, Adam, and thy aged mother, Eve, who were before thee, have eaten, and they learnt wisdom, and their eyes were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they were driven out of the garden. So this is what was shown to Enoch regarding the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This is what we see Enoch speak of regarding the tree of life. We get this commentary, and it gives us a little extra perspective on these two trees, and the fact that these trees, they're not just trees, they're symbols. The tree of life is symbolic of Yeshua, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil is symbolic of Hasatan, the evil one. Now, I want to go back to our Torah portion in Genesis and continue to see how this story unfolds. Unfortunately, we're going to see the story begins to take a turn for the worse here. Going to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, we read, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Did you notice what just happened? You notice what Satan does here. Look at what he does. He comes out and he calls into question that which God has commanded. What's he say? Oh, has God indeed said? Oh, really? Did God really command that? Is that what you're telling me? Did God really say that? The deception that the evil one uses here is so perverse. The psychology of it, when we begin to embark on this and study this, it is so brilliantly wicked. It's unbelievable. But here's what's so terrifying. This is the very same methodology that he is using on the church today. Those who are called by God to be holy, He's using the very same methodology, the very same mode of operation, his modus operandi, his method of movement, right? He's using the very same thing on the church. And what do I mean by that statement? Well, let me explain. Satan, he's gone out and he's called into question God's commandments, right? Is this not what he is doing with today's modern day church? Has he not gone out and called into question God's commandments? God's Torah, the Torah as a whole, the Sabbath. Has he not called these things into question? Now, as we are going to continue, we're going to see Eve respond to this statement. Has God really said? Did he really say that? Listen how Eve responds. Verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Not only was this tree forbidden to partake in its fruit, you weren't even allowed to touch it. You touch the tree, you're dead. That's the promise of God. And this is the response that Eve gives Satan. Pay attention to this dialogue. She responds in a great way, right? Satan calls into question the commandment of God. What she do? Said, Eve comes back and says, ah, God commanded us, we can't do it. It's forbidden. I can't even touch it. Now, after this response, does Satan put his tail between his legs and run? Oh, you got me. I'm, I'm really impressed. You just laid the hammer down. I'm scared and I'm out of here. Is this what he does? Well, let's see. Going to verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Five words. Five just little words. You will not surely die. And you ask me, the lie is eerily familiar to today's seeker-sensitive PC watered-down modern-day church, where grace apparently covers rebellion. Regardless of the things that you do, you will not surely die. That's the lie. Satan has breached the walls of the church, and by and large, they really believe there is no consequences. There is no reaping and sowing. You will not reap what you sow. This is the lie that Satan just presented here. You will not reap what you sow. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about what God commanded. 
What did Satan just do here? This is what's so frightening to me. He went in and he stripped the fear of God away from his commandment. He stripped the fear of God away. And what we learned last week, you strip the fear of God away and you can bet there's going to be disobedience that follows. Because there is no payment. If, I don't, if Eve doesn't have to worry about dying, the tree sure looks a lot more appealing. Right? The Apostle Paul sends this warning to the Romans. Chapter 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. In other words, you go partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which is disobedience against God. That's what it is. Analyze the tree for what it is. The tree is disobedience to God's commandment. If you go partake of its fruit, you are going to die. You live according to the flesh, you're dead. But if you live according to the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you're going to live. It's life. Eternal life. Paul is talking about eternal life here. And going back to this dialogue, let's go further into this dialogue between Eve and Satan. Verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Listen to what he does. The masterful deception. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Again, I ask you, what just happened? What did Satan do right here? I will tell you. In verse 4, what's he do? He flat out lies. He goes to strip the fear of God away from them. He flat out, it's a lie. You're not going to die. And what's he peddling? Satan is peddling comfort in rebellion. Welcome to the modern day church. He is peddling comfort in rebellion. But then what does he do? That's not it. That's not the full dialogue. Then he goes on in verse 5 to speak absolute, 100% truth. The statement in verse 5 is absolute truth. Let me give you a modern day example, and you're going to see this because this is what happens to Adam and Eve. Their eyes will be open. They will be like God, knowing good and evil. Let me give you a modern day example of how this tactic, this brilliantly wicked tactic, can be used today. All right? Satan comes in with the lie, says he did with Eve. We don't need the law. The law has been done away with. No need to study it. It's not for application. Despite what Yeshua said in Matthew 5.17, let's not forget that. That was the command. And He came, He did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill. But here comes the lie. Law has been done away with. You don't need it. And what does Satan do? He envelopes it in beautiful truth with this. Because Christ died for us. We're under grace. It is the exact, exact identical, same modus operandi that we see happening in the Garden of Eden. Exact. You take the lie and you cover it up with a beautiful truth. Because the truth is, is that Christ did die for us and we are under grace. Right? Because of what He did for us. We are saved by grace through faith that not of ourselves, it is a gift of God. It's amazing. We are up against an adversary that is underestimated in every way. You know, we need to understand when God created man, we were never designed to experience evil. We were never designed to experience sin on any level. And yet the world does what? Everything, every aspect of the world tells you this is what you need to experience. Buzzwords like experimentation. If anyone's been to college, that's the buzzword. We're experimenting, whether it be with drugs, sex, all the fornication and immorality. Experimenting, what's another thing that happens when you get into this light? With religions. All of this experimentation going on. The world is actually leading the church. The church is not leading the world. The world's leading the church. Any question to that? Just start to look at some of the realities of the church. They build better coffee shops than Starbucks does. You understand? The world is actually teaching our teens, specifically our teen girls, how to dress. 
Unfortunately, the girls in the church who are supposed to be godly are not teaching the world how to dress. And it's just a slippery slope, one thing after another. You start noticing all these seminaries that existed. Bethel Seminary, North Central Seminary. They're not called seminaries anymore. They're called universities. Welcome to the world. Who is leading who? Who is teaching who? I assure you, the church has made it their aim and their goal to be more like the world. We're in trouble. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. Speaking of spiritual understanding, the Word of God. However, in malice, wickedness, be babes. But in understanding, be mature. We were never meant to partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And every time we go to the world to be led, to be tantalized, you are partaking of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It will produce death. It will kill you. Verse 6, going into this dialogue between Satan and Eve. This is so amazing. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, did you see what just happened? What did Satan do? The first thing he did is strip the fear. Strip the fear of dying. Of what God will do, of being punished by God. And then I'll embrace it and envelope it in truth. Right? And what does that do? Turns her head to look at what he wants her to look at. To look at how desirable it is for us today. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. The pride of life. Certain, Satan wants to turn your heads so that you start looking at it as an option. What's amazing is all the adultery that goes on. Men are looking at other women as options. There is no option. If you're married, it's over. That's it. You're done. There's no options. But Satan is presenting Eve with an option here. And she is now, he, he's won. He's already won because he's turned her head. And now she's looking at sin. Face to face. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what does she see? It's what all the believers see when they go to the world to fulfill the lust of their flesh. The tree was good for food. It looks yummy. I want to taste it. I want it. That it was pleasant to the eyes. It's appealing to the eyes. This is what got King David in trouble. He turned his eyes. We've got to hide our eyes. Be careful, little eyes, what you see, right? So she saw that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise. Intellectualism. I want to be exalted. I want to be all-knowing so that I know more than you. And you are my peon. This is how the world thinks. It exalts itself in pride constantly. Oh, wait a minute. Who's that? That's Satan. Right? Is this not what got him in trouble? His pride. His glory and splendor. He started looking at himself rather than the very thing that made him glorious. Rather than focusing on the Lord. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. You'll notice here that after they ate the forbidden tree, they're naked, their eyes are open. Exactly what Satan told them. He told them the truth. And that's what happened. Their eyes were open. They were like God now, knowing good and evil. But it's interesting what they do. And again, this is very important. They went out because they sinned and they sowed for themselves fig leaves. What did they do? They went out to cover themselves. But let me ask you, how did that work out? Right? How did that work out? Because next thing we know is God comes into the garden, He pays them a little visit, they hear His voice, and they run for the hills. They go to hide their shame. Right? What's that tell us? They didn't have the power to cover their sin. They didn't have the power to cover their shame. Look at verse 21. So what would the Lord do? For Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Only God's covering will hide our shame. 
And notice it specifically says that they made tunics of skin. In other words, blood had to be shed, right? To clothe them. Blood had to be shed to clothe them. So that they could, their, their shame could be hidden. It's amazing all the insight. And when you look at the Torah portion, Genesis 1. I mean, and I mean beginning with verse 1 all the way through 6. It is riddled with imagery of Yeshua. Everything from Elohim creating the heaven and the earth. Yeshua. The light being revealed to the world. Yeshua to the tree of life. Yeshua. To the covering. The fact that Yeshua would have to die. So that our shame could be hidden. This was what Yom Kippur was all about. It's about a covering of atonement. It's to cover our shame, our sins. Moving to verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. See? It's true what Satan said. To know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. Adam and Eve, literally falling victim to Satan's deception, partaking of this forbidden tree, and their eyes are now open, and they knew good and evil, did what? It cost them their lives. They now experience the wrath of God. They now experience the curse of God. Disobedience brings about a curse. Adam and Eve mixed the holy with the profane. I want you to think about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for a second. It is not called the tree of the knowledge of good. It is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's fascinating because it tells you the holy has now been perverted and mixed with the, un- the profane. Clean with unclean. Again, and I'm beating hard down on the church, but welcome to the church. The church looks like the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Mixing holy with the profane. So looking at these two trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we see that these trees symbolize two very distinct and different paths. One that leads to life and one that leads to death. These trees symbolize two very distinct individuals. Yeshua and Satan. I mean, that's what this is all about. It's all about good and evil. I'll take you to Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. This takes me back to the Garden of Eden. Because Adam and Eve were presented with good and evil. Life and death. That's what was in the very center of it all, in the center of the garden. Tree, side by side. They were looking at life and death. And here we see in Deuteronomy, I've, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. He's bringing them back to the garden. These are the two trees. And that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to keep His commandments, His statutes, His judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. Verse 17, but, see the blessing. I do what he says, I'm blessed, I'm not cursed. But, verse 17, if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them. It's interesting, immediately, what is brought up with disobedience is worship. If you worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you will surely perish. It's what happens when you partake of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And you shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go and possess. Adam and Eve did not prolong their days in the garden, in the promised land, of which they were supposed to possess. They were cast out. It's interesting. Boil it all down. Look at what happened in today's Torah portion. Look at the two trees. Look at what they were presented with. And it all comes down to worship. Every aspect comes down to worship. It comes down to faith. What did Eve do? Think about this. She put her faith in the words of the evil one. She put her faith and trust in Satan. What do you call that? I call that worship. She chose to worship the adversary 
over the worship of God. And this is where it gets in. Obedience equals worship. That's why we are so hard, pressed hard to preach the righteousness of God here. The commandments, because it's worship. Another interesting fact, which I'm not going to get too far into today. I might, as a part two, I think I'm going to bring a part two onto this message. And maybe we'll get into a little bit further. But it's interesting, going back to the garden, you remember what it said? It said that the serpent was more crafty, right? More cunning than any what? Beast of the field. And when God cursed him because of the fall for drawing these people, for drawing Adam and Eve away from him, he became cursed. And what's he say? You are cursed more than any beast of the field. On your belly will crawl. Here's why this is interesting. Because what I want you to see, and maybe we'll talk more about this, is that in the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Eden before the fall of man, we see the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast existed then. It has been carried out through the tapestry of this universe, of this age, of this earth. It's the mark of the beast. It all comes down to obedience. The mark of the beast was there. It has existed in every generation, despite what the fictional books are telling you. So, because Adam and Eve chose to eat of the tree, they chose to worship Satan. Listen, what happens in verse 24. He drove out uh, the man and he placed a carabine at the end of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So because sin, man was cut off from the land of the living, if you will. Cut off from the tree of life. Cast out of the garden, cursed to die. And that's what happened. Adam ended up dying in the day. It's exactly what God told him would happen. This is what you need to realize. When God says... If you don't keep my commandments, and as Paul says, Ephesians chapter 5, Colossians chapter 3, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You can take it to the bank. It's going to happen exactly how God prophesied. It's exactly how the apostles talked about. Fortunately for us, there is good news. Fortunately for us, the Lord sent His Son Yeshua to save us. And look at what is going to happen. I'm going to close with this. Revelation 22.12 And behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. I give to everyone according to his work. You got that? There's the warning. You're going to get your just due. It's coming. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments. Why? That they may have right to the tree of life. And mantere through the gates of the city. Do you want to be able to partake of the tree of life? Do you want to live forever? Do what He says. Keep His commandments. And do not let Satan strip the fear of God from you. That fear that keeps you on the path of knowing, hey, if I don't love my neighbors himself, if I commit adultery, ah, He'll forgive me. Garbage. you thinking like that, you're taking from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You're going to go down. You think you're going to break the Sabbath and get away with it. God sees everything. He is going to call you into account for your actions. We'll go on to verse 15. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters. Whoever loves, and interesting enough, look at the terminology here, loves and practices a lie. That's what happened to Eve in the garden. I, Yeshua, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. It's beautiful.
It's a day.